So, is it okay to embellish stories once in a while for introductions? I hope so. So, <laughs> so I've been I've been working. How much you embellished it maybe makes a difference. Yeah, this is true. Uh, so I've been working out lately, recently, and I haven't been seeing much progress, right? And uh, so a friend of mine says, "Well, you might actually want to use a few weights." Or maybe a little bit of resistance when you're working on it. I'm thinking, like, why would I want to do... Airlifting is so much easier. You know, I don't sweat. My muscles don't get sore. It's a piece of cake, right? Now, obviously, that's meant to be funny, and you guys chuckle, and and we should, right? Um, But, you know, we have a tendency sometimes, not all of us, but sometimes we have a tendency to treat our faith that way. Um, we really want the Lord just to make everything easy for us so that we don't have to put any weight behind trusting him. We don't want there to be resistance in that trust, right? We don't want to have to lift against uh, the world or, or have things coming into our lives that are causing resistance and abrasion and frustration. And, and uh, that is, those are all like weights, right? That is resistance that happens in our life and causes our faith to grow. So not that we should be looking for those things, but we should welcome them when they come and embrace that process and just lean into trusting God. Um, but a lot of times, just like my story about lifting weights, we, we tend to air trust God. We just assume air trust and keep things easy. Um, we want him to keep things easy. See, we don't have to overtrust the God who created the entire universe. You know, because maybe he doesn't really have time. Does he really care about me? Does he really have time to think about the things that I'm concerned about or things that are happening to me? Well, let's hope so. Um, Colossians 1.17 says that he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. The Bible clearly teaches that God not only created the universe, but that he sustains it day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, second by second. Quantum leap by quantum leap, cork by cork. You get the picture, right? Down to the smallest, minutest detail. Um, God is actually thinking and sustaining things. Scripture says that Christ, the Son of God, upholds the universe by the word of his power. And again, in Hebrews 1, verse 3, it says, The Son, who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustains all things by his powerful word. And what are words? I guess if, if, you've, if you've been around trail long enough, you've heard this before. Words are the expression of a mind, right? So it's thoughts coming out into and creating and being sound waves. Well, God's thoughts actually make things happen. And part of that making things happen is that he sustains not only us, but everything in the creation. If he stopped thinking about any one of us or anything in the creation, it would instantly cease to exist. Or we would cease to exist if he if he stopped thinking about us. So he does care. We are on his heart and on his mind and in his thoughts. Um, and we can well maybe we should ask him to stop thinking about our problems so they would all go away, right? <laughs> they could instantly go away. Better yet, maybe we can ask that he actually take on that thinking about our problems so we can stop worrying about them. So we can seek God first. Uh, praying first rather than praying as a last resort, right? And actually, when you tell somebody you're going to pray for them, stopping right then and doing so, 
you know, making it in that moment, praying for them, lifting them before the Lord, lifting their issues before the Lord. Uh, seeking godly wisdom and counsel early or first when trouble is coming rather than seeking godly counsel to help us clean up a mess that we've made. We'll be in chapter 8 tonight of Isaiah, and you can, you're welcome to turn there if you'd like. Um, and while you're doing that, I want to remind you or just catch you up on um, the events up to this point. It's going to be review for most of you, and that's okay. Um, we need reminders. I need reminders at least as we go through this. So um, I just want to remind you of the story, the big picture story of Isaiah. And in chapter 1, if you remember, we had, we had God setting up this courtroom scene where he's calling on all of creation. Uh, he's calling on the heavens and the earth to bear witness against Israel for breaking the covenant. Well, when it's being made. So it only makes sense that when the covenant is being broken, he's calling on them as his witnesses against his, against his people, against Israel. Um, and what is God accusing them of? Well, there's this threefold message in the prophets, if you remember. Uh, he says, Israel, you've broken the covenant. Repent. And the second statement is, well, no repentance? Then judgment is coming on you and on the nations. And the third statement is, even though you're experiencing this judgment, there is hope in the future for you and for the nations. So the threefold statement is broken covenant, so repent. No repentance, then judgment. Even in the midst of judgment, there's hope in the future. A glorious hope, really. Not just hope, but a glorious hope. And if you recall the three, um, the three primary charges, this is how they broke the covenant, right? The three primary charges that are brought against them is idolatry, worshiping other gods, uh, social injustice, and religious ritualism. So relying on what we would call the law, the Levitical law, the sacrificial law, relying on performing these duties, relying on, on those rich, relying on those things as rituals, as if sacrifices were what was saving them. It was never about the sacrifices. It was about their faith and trust in God. And I think I had this later in my notes that I was going to get to this, but I'm going to jump in right now on it. I, I mentioned, I think the last time that I taught, or one of the last times anyway, that, that our, some of our thinking about what we think of as law in the Old Testament needs to shift a little bit. It's actually instructions for holy living would be a much better interpretation of what uh, Exodus, the Ten Commandments, and then all the Levitical system, the priestly, all of that would be better thought of as this is how you live with a holy God. Same thing in the New Testament, the law of Christ that we all live under. This is how you live a holy life. This is what a holy life looks like. Um, so instructions for holy living. We say commandments and laws, and that kind of gives it a negative connotation. Um, it, but it's really instructions. It's like, if you want to live with me, speaking as God, now right, his word. Um, if you want to live with me, then live a holy life. And this is how you do it. This is how you go about it. Um, so that's really the purpose of of the commandments and all these things that we look at as law. Um, so as we moved through Isaiah in chapters 2 through 4, we saw this contrast between who the people of God should be, what it would look like to be holy, living holy lives, um, what they should look like as God's people, the ideal, and then the realities 
of what they were really like, how sinful they were, and, and the things that God was holding against them, um, the realities of how depraved they were and how sinful. And then we had this sandwiched around, or that sandwiched in between, this hopeful ideal and then this future hopeful glory that was coming, that God promised was coming. And that's chapters 2 through 4. In chapter 5, God's people are described as a vineyard, a vineyard that God nurtured. He planted, he picked the best hillside that would get sun all the time, he watered it, he picked out the choicest vines to plant um, in order to to to, to uh, plant this vineyard that would produce just abundant and, and really good fruit. And then when the harvest came, he got wild grapes. He got rebellion. Uh, this was all, it was all a description of Israel, of his people. Uh, he provided them with everything in their environment that they needed to live holy lives. And instead they, instead, they rebelled. They were rebellious. So wild grapes. He got wild grapes when he should have gotten uh, a pristine vineyard. Um, and, well, I mentioned a list of very specific sins that the text was calling out in chapter 5, and those were greed, self-indulgence, cynicism, moral perversion, and social injustice. And if I could go back and redo the end of that message, I would have asked this question. What would be the outcome if these were sanctified? What would happen if greed was actually sanctified? What would it look like if self-indulgence was sanctified by God? If cynicism, moral perversion, social injustice, if these were all turned inside out, what we would have is generosity and self-control. We'd have uh, loyalty to the Lord and moral integrity, humility and justice. It actually might look a lot like the fruits of the Spirit, uh, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, gentleness, holy living at its finest. And we moved into chapter 6. Pastor Bill got to teach on chapter 6, and what an incredible scene. We get this magnificent picture of God's glory. um, It's really Isaiah's calling, and he sees the Lord in in his throne room and sitting on the throne, and and the cherubim are flying around crying out, holy, 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 and it's this incredible scene of the the creator of the universe, the judge who's actually bringing these charges, sitting on his throne, sitting in his seat of judgment, and Isaiah is just in awe. He's un, he says, I'm, I'm undone. I'm, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm about to die. Uh, I'm a man of unclean lips. And Bill made such an awesome connection. When I first heard him say it, I was thinking, where did that come from? But he actually talked about out of, out, of the, uh, out of the heart the mouth speaks, which is a proverb. And as soon as he connected that verse, it was like, oh, of course. What a great connection he made. Uh, and out of Isaiah's, out of his heart, his mouth spoke. And that's, that was his unclean lips, at least one portion of it. And he lived among a people of unclean lips. Another, I think another portion of that, uh, that feeling of uncleanness was knowing that not only him, but all of the people that he lived with, they were, they were violating the third commandment, which is not to take the Lord's name in vain. Now, not necessarily speaking, um, like things that we would think of that that we call taking the Lord's name in vain shouldn't do that. Never never take something that's holy and profane it, right? And I've mentioned this before, but the, another portion of that is uh, like a nominal living nominally, proclaiming Yahweh 
as your God and then living uh, an idolatrous life, not living that holy life that he called you to. That's profaning God's name. That's taking his name and making it empty, making it vain, um, taking advantage of it in a sense. So uh, not trusting him, not honoring God in their hearts, even while they're performing these rituals. Uh, in, uh, in one of the commentaries that we, that, well, I use anyway, I think several of us use it, it's uh, the Preaching the Word commentary. Raymond Ortland says the following. He says, if Isaiah had been an 18th century man, he could have written a hymn like this one by John Newton. Let worldly minds the world pursue. It has no charms for me. Once I admired its trifles too, but grace has set me free. Its pleasures no longer please, no more content afford. uh, Far from my heart be joys like these. Now I have seen the Lord. As by the light of opening day, the stars are all concealed. So earthly pleasures fade away when Jesus is revealed. Creatures no more divide my choice. I bid them all depart. His name and love and gracious voice have fixed my roving heart. What was Newton saying here? He was saying that created things no longer capture my attention. They're no, they're no longer the focus of me. Even as Rush prayed and, and as I spoke of earlier, these songs that we sing and things that we think of, um, we have these distractions, right? And Newton's saying here, uh, or yeah, and Newton in this poem is, is saying, they no longer distract me. I have the Lord. The Lord is enough. I'm satisfied with God. Uh, my heart is no longer divided between them. That happened to Isaiah when he saw the Lord in Isaiah 6. Um, God took away his divided heart, and he gave him a united heart. But then in, in uh, chapter 7, we encounter a, a man with a divided heart, a roving heart, King Ahaz of Judah. Um, so and what's the difference between, or what makes the difference between someone like Isaiah and someone like Ahaz? Well, a big part of the answer is that Isaiah had a sense of the glory of Christ in his heart. He'd just... He'd had this magnificent vision at his, at his commissioning, at his calling, when the Lord put this call on his life. His faith was not uh, based in legalism. It wasn't this heroic rejection of temptation. It wasn't this um, profound, triumphant self-mastery over his flesh. It wasn't some stoic resistance toward all the things of the world. Um, Isaiah... Had, was given such a sense of Christ that he could say, here am I, send me in the midst of this incredible scene that he was right in the middle of. That's Christianity. That is Christianity. Too often, what passes for Christianity today is a life that's legislated, um, trying to, f- hear me out, trying to follow this good example of Jesus, which is a fine thing to do. But that's not all there is to Christianity. It's so much more than that. Um, the other the other part of that is it's often uh, Christianity today is is uh, displayed or legislated by the threat of divine punishment. Um, but the person who's afraid of sinning because of hellfire, they're not really afraid of sinning. They're just afraid of getting burned, right? They're buying fire insurance when 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 they say a prayer uh, or make some kind of a commitment to the Lord. Um, they have no love for salvation, no stimulus for action except fear and pride. 
true faith is swallowed up with such a such a sense of the glory of Christ, seeing his magnificence and just being overwhelmed with it, um, that the heart, our heart actually transcends choice um, in the pleasures of surrender. We'd rather surrender to Christ. God really is enough. A lot of times in counseling, when people are experiencing just devastation, devastation in their lives, things being stripped away, losing family, friends, jobs, whatever it might be, it's like maybe that question that God is asking you right now is, am I enough? Is God enough for you? If you lose everything else, if you lose everything that your identity is based in, is God enough? Hopefully that answer would be yes. So in chapter 7, uh, it, and the reason I'm referring so much to chapter 7 is this really is one big section. Chapter 7 through chapter 9 uh, is it's really kind of the same prophecy, uh, the same story, and but it's too big to teach all in one night. So we broke it down into, it'll end up being three nights by the time we get through it. But um, in chapter 7, Ahaz finds himself at a, cross, at, at a crossroad of trust. The southern kingdom of Judah, which, where he's the king, is doing well financially. Um, they've been experiencing relatively peaceful times for, for quite a while, but there are these... Well, there are some wars and there's rumors of wars and conspiracies and things that are being talked about. And he finds himself being pressured by the king of Israel, the northern tribes, and the king of Assyria. And they want him to join forces with them against Assyria, which is the, the superpower in the north. Um, because there's rumblings there that Assyria is coming to attack Damascus and uh, uh, the northern tribes, Samaria. So... They're saying, join us, or we're going to displace you, and we're going to put our own king on the throne in the south. We'll put somebody there that, that will do our bidding, essentially. And um, you can read all the details about this and King Ahaz's reign in Second Kings 16, and for like two or three chapters beyond that, and then also in Second Chronicles, starting in chapter 28 for several chapters. So um, feel free anytime, not right now, but anytime this week to read that section, because it really fills in a lot of the details about what was happening in the, in the time frame there, and about these um, skirmishes and wars that were, that were happening and about to happen. Um, so by the time that Isaiah comes to see Ahaz, he's already in the process of, if hasn't already um, made a treaty with the king of Assyria, um, Tiglath-Pileser. And these guys were brutal. The Assyrians, they stacked up the heads of people they conquered out in front of the gates of the cities they conquered in order to not have rebellion in the city, uh, put people's heads on spikes and you know such displays of brutality in order to keep the peace through force, right? Um, so Ahaz is looking, and he wants, to, he wants to bet on the winning horse, and he's going with Assyria, thinking that they're, gonna, they're the ones he should make a deal with. And Isaiah comes and says, God says, don't do anything, essentially. Don't make any treaties. Don't support these other two kings, because by the time this child that he makes a prophecy about is um, old enough to, to know good from bad, those guys are going to be gone. They're just they're smoldering wicks that are going to be gone. Um, both of them will be wiped out by Assyria. He doesn't tell him that up front, but by Assyria. But God's also promising that he's, he's going to protect the south from Assyria. So don't make a deal with them either. You don't need any treaties. Just trust me. 
But Ahaz has a serious problem. His faith has been airlifting his whole life. He's never put any serious trust in Yahweh. Um, he's dabbled here and there, and he's an idolater, and, and he's sought out you know, whatever the god of the day in, in the idolatrous culture that he was in, which was Israel or Judah. Um, you know, he, he never put any real trust or faith in Yahweh. Um, never put any real confidence in his ability, in Yahweh's ability to, to deliver on his promises. And one thing about God is that he consistently allows his people to receive the wages of not trusting him. He even does that today. He allows us to receive the wages of not trusting him. Uh, so Isaiah confronts Ahaz, and he offers a, a sign to confirm the Lord's promises of deliverance. But as you recall, Ahaz says, oh, far be it for me to test the Lord. I would never do such a thing. Um, and in response, uh, Isaiah says, uh, hear then, O house of David. Is it too little? For, and this is verse 13 of chapter 6, um, or 7, I mean. Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Uh, what we know for sure is that this is fulfilled in Jesus. Matthew very clearly makes a connection, Jesus's birth to this prophecy in Isaiah. What's not quite as clear is what the near fulfillment of this is, because as Bill explained, there's usually a near fulfillment of a prophecy or a sign and a far fulfillment. Um, and a lot of options are offered up in the scholarly world. So why the confusion? Well, keep in mind the purpose of signs. This is helpful, I think, if we're aware of this. We tend to think of signs as something that occurs in order to bring faith about, in order to, to make faith happen in people's lives. That's really not the purpose of signs. Uh, amongst the believing community, signs absolutely will do that. They will encourage our faith. If we saw a sign as believers, we'd be encouraged. We'd think, that's awesome. That's, that's God. That's the Lord at work. Non-believers, it's not necessarily going to bring them to faith. Now, in, like in this kind of a situation where Ahaz is given a sign or told about a sign, that sign is going to become a continuous reminder to Ahaz that he should have trusted Yahweh. Every time he sees whoever this child is, which... Bill offered a couple of explanations last week. It also it may have been um, Isaiah's second son, the one that we get introduced to tonight. It, maybe it was Hezekiah. Don't really know for sure. But whoever it was, Ahaz would have understood when he saw a child that fit this description, and he probably knew the, the child that, that fulfilled that sign in his day. Um, he would have known, this is to remind me that I should have trusted Yahweh when I didn't. That's the purpose of the sign that's offered up. Um, so why not make the sign clearer? Why not make it clearer to us? Would it, would it, wouldn't it produce more faith? Well, two, the two generations that saw the most signs were the generation of Moses, when the law was given, and Jesus' generation. And there was plenty of distrust and unfaithfulness in those two generations. The signs that were offered did not produce an abundance of faith. Uh, in fact, it hardened many hearts. Um, if you look back at Isaiah's commissioning in chapter 6, you know, when Isaiah looks around and he says, uh, Here am I, send me. 
And then verse 9, as God commissions him, he says, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. God has put a veil on their ability to discern and to understand. They're not his sheep, so they don't hear his voice, right? Jesus quoted this back to the disciples when they asked, why do, you, why, do you teach, why do you teach in parables all the time? Why are you teaching the people in parables? And Jesus quoted this verse to them. But then he added uh, this, which we should take heart in. He said, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see. He was speaking about himself in particular, but for us, we can look back at the cross. And many prophets longed to see that, to understand that, but they didn't, and they did not hear it. The apostles did, and then they've passed that story on to us. And It's such an amazing privilege that we've been given ears to hear and eyes to see and understanding of these things. Uh, So kind of to wrap up chapter 7, it appears to have been a private message to Ahaz, but chapter 8 doesn't doesn't seem to be so private. Chapter 8, God tells him, get this big chunk of, like, get a big whiteboard and write on it. Um, And write in in a common tongue. The wording is a little challenging. I'm no Hebrew expert, but from what I've read, the wording there is a little challenging to understand. It may have been talking about the kind of stylus he used. Maybe it was talking about the language he wrote in. But at any rate, it appears that it was written large and there were witnesses to it. And it was some potentially some sort of a public display uh, or at least available because it was a sign that was to be known. Um, so chapter 8, and I'm just going to read little chunks here and make a little bit of commentary as we go along, a little bit more commentary at the end. But uh, Chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Meher Shalal Hashbaz, which means... Uh, now I can't remember what it means. Somebody's got a Bible that's, that's got footnotes that says what it means, including me right here. Quick to the plunder, speedy to the prey. Thank you. Say it, say it louder. Yeah. So it's a war cry, essentially. It means after them quick, they're running away, we can get them, and then we plunder them. So it's speedy to the plunder, quick to the prey. Um, this, he's naming his son this. It's just a little trivia, Bible, Bible trivia here. This is the longest name in the Bible, just so you know. Um, and feel free to use it for your next son. Um, yeah. Verse 2, And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. Um, there's not a lot of information about who this particular Zechariah is, but Uriah the priest would have actually been uh, an ally of Ahaz. He would have been somebody that was friendly to Ahaz, somebody that, that regularly conversed with him, that Ahaz trusted. So he was a reliable witness, even to the person who the sign was being given to. Um, so there wouldn't be any disputing that Isaiah had written this and that he'd written it before the events happened, essentially is the idea here. 
verse 3. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. And then the Lord said to me, Call his name Meher Shalal Hashbaz. So the name that he had just written down. Um, For before the boy knows how to cry, my mother or my father, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be, kill, will be carried away before the king of Assyria. How long does it take for your child to be able to say my mother and my father? At what age? I mean, you know, two, three, four, maybe. One year? Smart kids. <laughs> yeah, maybe a year. So it's a pretty short time span, right? He's still going to be toddling probably. So within a very short period of this child being born, um, the wealth of these, these two kings, who are the burning wicks, right, of the chapter before, is going to be gone. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be done. They're, they're not going to be any bother to you anymore. So uh, this prophecy is happening in a short span of time. One of the... Uh, this son of Isaiah, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, is potentially thought to be the child, the, the, the near fulfillment of the child from chapter 7. And the, the uh, reasoning that goes around that, it, because she's called a virgin, right, or at least a young maiden, um, so unmarried. Um, so the, the, the thought process goes like this, that Isaiah's first son, or his wife by his first son, died, and that his second son, he went and married again. She conceived and... Um, and bore this son. Um, so p- potentially that could fulfill or be the son talked about in verse 7, or chapter 7, I mean. Um, and it would make sense because Isaiah was in the court a lot. He was around Ahaz because he was the prince, right? The prince the prophet, the prophet, prince of prophets because he was related to uh, Ahaz. He was a cousin um, so he would have been allowed in easily that this child would have been around. Ahaz a lot would have been a constant reminder, again, that Ahaz should have trusted the Lord. I'm not saying this is definitely him. I don't know. But it's one of the possibilities um, for the near fulfillment. And the timing makes sense. Uh, verse 5, the Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. God is with us, or God with us. O Emmanuel, God with us, again. Um. So he's naming a person here that it's their land, but it's also this this name that has this meaning, God is with us. Uh, as we work through those verses a little bit, I want to point out, um, if you remember where Isaiah went and met Ahaz, Ahaz was probably out looking at his water supply, which would have been a, a small stream, the Shiloh River, uh, very calm. And Isaiah points out that the people are rejecting this calm river, using it as a, a euphemism or an analogy of God and his peace and his calmness. And you're choosing these wild rapids, these wild rivers uh, of Assyria. You're putting your trust in, in this roller coaster instead of this peaceful provision of God. Um, consider, if you remember the story of Naaman, 
the uh, general from Assyria when he came to, or from Syria, I mean, when he came and got, uh, he, he came to visit um, Elisha because he had leprosy, right? A little prophet girl that he had in his house said, hey, go visit. There's a prophet in, in uh, Israel. Go see him. He can, he can bring a cure. And his complaint was what? Don't we have great rivers here? And this guy wants me to go dunk myself in the Podunk Jordan. Why would I do that? I've got great rivers at home that I could have dunked myself in. So, um, so it's the same idea. The Lord's provision is peaceful and calm, and it may not look like much, but is God enough? Is he enough for us? Is his provision adequate? It's everything we need. Um, the rejoicing over Rezin and the son of Ramalia, probably the people are rejoicing because they know Assyria is going to come wipe them out, uh, and they're actually excited about that, which is a little sad since at least the uh, half the people they're talking about are their brothers and sisters, the northern tribes. Um, And then it talks about this river again, mighty and many, the king of Assyria. So it's talking about Assyria coming in and just uh, taking over, just sweeping through like a flood and taking over uh, Damascus and Samaria. Um, The problem is when you have a river that's flooding, you can't really contain it. And it comes on into the southern tribes as well, right up to their neck. And they're on their tippy toes surviving, which they do survive. And Assyria is wiped out. If you remember the story, uh, King Sennacherib is the one who came in. He lost like 185,000. It's not in Isaiah here, but he lost 185,000 troops to an angel of the Lord in one night. Um, And they turned and went home. And that was uh, Hezekiah would have been the king in Judah at that point. So it's coming up a little bit later in Isaiah, but... Um, and there's this reminder that this land is Emmanuel's. It belongs to God with us. And then verse 9, Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand for God, for Emmanuel. Same word here, for God is with us. Um, this, isn't a word, this is a word of encouragement to the remnant that's still there, and it's, it's this, uh, just showing this idea of what trust in God looks like. Bring your best. Send your best. Send your worst. Strap on your armor, but it's going to be shattered. You will, you're not going to succeed. And when we get into chapter 9, we find out why. Because the zeal of the Lord will accomplish uh, this protection and it will accomplish this great light that comes out of Nephtali and, and all the great things that we get to see next time we're together in Isaiah, but not tonight. Um, verse 11, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and he warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. 
And when you and when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness." Isn't that a happy note to end on? Well, light is coming, as I said, in the next chapter, and that'll, that'll be in two weeks um, when we'll look into chapter 9. And some of the most famous verses in Isaiah, ones that we share with each other on Christmas cards regularly, so you'll recognize so many of the verses in chapter 9. Um, I mentioned that Ahaz was at a crossroad of trust in chapter 7 and also in chapter 8 here, but... Uh, what crossroad of trust have you experienced recently? Maybe you're experiencing some crossroads of trust right now, needing to make a decision. Um, you know, are you going to are you going to trust in your own ability, or are you going to set aside, or are you going to trust in humanity, or are you going to trust in our government, um, some system here, or are you going to trust in God? Whatever that might be. Are you prepared for some heavy trust exercise? Have you been preparing yourself by trusting God or have you just been airlifting or air trusting? Well, sadly, God's people resist God's blessing. Um, How many people who say they trust in Christ really open up to him with no preconditions? You know, coming to him, it's like, Lord, yes, you're enough. Whatever you bring. Here am I, send me, whatever that means, whatever it looks like. I'm going to trust you through it all. Or do we treat him like a vending machine where it's like, you know, this is what I'd like, God, and then we're pulling on the handle hoping that he dispenses the thing that we want rather than what he wants. Um, You know, he's actually, well, (laughs) I almost said he's joining our team. That's what we think so often. We think, well, God's joining my team, right? No, actually, we're joining his team. Um, He's the captain. He's he's the, the... commander. He's God. Uh, It takes God's grace to preserve a trusting remnant against those who identify outwardly with him. Um, The remnant, and as the remnant, we're not to be some spiritual, super spiritual elitists looking down on others, but we should be daring to live by faith in God. Not worrying about being, uh, or not being careful to not risk too much on him, but putting our full weight and trust into him. The difference shows up, we can see it. Jonathan Edwards describes a true Christian like this. He says, as he has more holy boldness, so he has less self-confidence. As he is more sure than others of deliverance from hell, so he has a greater sense that he deserves it. He is less apt than uh, less apt than others to be shaken in faith, but more apt than others to be moved by solemn warnings, God's frowns, or the calamities of others. He has the firmest comfort, but the softest heart, richer than others, but poorest of all in spirit. He is the tallest and strongest saint, but the least 
and tenderest child among them. That beauty marks God's true people. Does it describe you? At least a little bit? How is the remnant set apart as God's true people? Well, it's not as simple as just joining the right church or joining a certain church. Uh, The remnant is known, first of all, by the presence of God. Um, Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. When Ahaz and his people were told of the Syro-Ephraimite forces, so the forces that were coming from the two kingdoms just above them, when they heard about that in in verse in uh, chapter seven, it says they shook like leaves on a tree, so they were quaking in fear. Um, but the remnant stands out with a defiant confidence. We actually experience God with us. We experience Emmanuel. So we look at the same crisis and we say, do your worst, strap on your armor, but you will be shattered. John puts it like this in 1 John 5, 4. He says, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. There's another little story. Um, Richard Williams, uh, who was a young surgeon and a, a Methodist lay preacher and an Anglican minister named Alan Gardner, uh, went together on a missionary trip to Tierra del Fuego in 1851. Their ship was forced to winter in a cold and bitter bay, and the supply vessel never arrived. Everyone on board their ship died of cold and starvation. But even as they were suffering, on Good Friday, April 18, 1851, Williams wrote in his journal, Poor and weak though we are, our abode is a very Bethel to our souls. And God, we feel and know, is here. When he says Bethel, he's referring to Jacob's ladder. When Jacob uh, rested his head on a stone and had a dream and saw angels ascending and descending on this great ladder. Uh, so that this place he's talking about, or this Bethel for their souls, is something very holy, something very precious. Then on Wednesday, May 7th, he wrote, Should anything prevent my ever adding to this, let all my beloved ones at home rest assured that I was happy beyond description when I wrote these lines and would not have changed situations with any man living. When your supply ship does not arrive, God can make your crisis a very Bethel to your soul. As you find by faith that he's with you, he makes you happy beyond description. Uh, Secondly, the remnant is set apart by a fear of God. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, Isaiah said, and warned me not to walk in the way of his people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. 
Isaiah was deeply impressed uh, with this in with this insight, with his strong hand upon me. The message here is that God's uh, is that a God consciousness redefines his urgency. He says, "Don't call conspiracy what all these people call conspiracy, and don't fear what they fear. Don't be in dread." Ahaz and Judah were wringing their hands over the Syro-Ephraimite threat, the threat that was coming from the north. The same way that we fear terrorists today, or maybe our next election. Um, God's remnant, we as his people, we're not without fear, but our approach needs to be different. We dare not overlook God. We see God at work in the events. Um, All the events that are happening around us, we see God at work in them, and we trust him through them. And in fearing him and having a proper respect for him, we actually are stabilized. So what does this fear of God look like? Well, verse 13 says, The Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. In other words, dare to treat God as God. Don't respond to life in a way that makes, that makes God look helpless, that makes him look weak and worthless. Um, living emotionally as if God were not really our Savior is, we might as well be atheists if we're just living on emotion. Um, if God is God, he is all that finally matters. The remnant, we as his remnant, respect God enough to live that way. How we treat God determines how we experience God, either as a sanctuary or as a snare. As it says in verse 14, and he will become a sanctuary and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Every one of us experiences God one way or another. If we take him into account as God, we'll enter into his sanctuary and experience his presence and his peace. But if other things compel us, well, God isn't going away. He's still going to be there. We end up colliding with him, tripping over him as a snare. The New Testament explains that God is the most unavoidable and the most dangerous in the person of Jesus Christ. He himself said, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Some people dismiss the gospel as irrelevant. Uh, You know, it doesn't mean anything to them. They stumble, they fall, they're broken. But grace awakens those who are the remnant in fear and trembling and faith. Third, the remnant is set apart by the truth of God. In uh, verses 16 through 18, Isaiah, in, um, well, in Ahaz's day, the gospel was not valued. This message from God, the good news from God wasn't valued. So when Isaiah says in uh, verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching, he means preserve this neglected wisdom for a later generation who will listen. The prize, the remnant discovers in God's word is implied by the coherence um, by what it says in verse 16 and 17, treasuring God's word, finding hope in God himself. Inseparable, bind up the testimony. I will hope in the Lord. You will find Christ and you will have, you will see him more fully and more clearly than if he stood before you, before your very eyes. That experience makes the remnant a prophetic presence in their generation. Hypocrites were the majority of the people in Ahaz's day, in Isaiah's day, and Ahaz's. Um, They chose a darkness that falls with increasing devastation. Um, Our only safety is seen in verse 20, to the teaching and to the testimony. In other words, run to the truth. Run to it and cling to it. And those who don't, 
If they will not speak according to the word, it is because they have no dawn, as it says in verse 20. Isaiah's people had the truth, but they didn't value it as their guide for life. Why? Well, they have no dawn. They have no illumination. They have no experience with the Lord. Real faith and unreal faith are as different as light and darkness, uh, even with the Bible open before us. But grace imparts to the remnant a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of God. So that in the eyes of their hearts, or so that the eyes of their hearts, so that the eyes of our hearts are enlightened to all that he's worth. And they live in wealth and light. In Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. And again in Isaiah 8, 22, it says, With its gloom of anguish transitions, or this gloom of anguish transitions to the triumph section of the passage. No gloom for her who was in anguish which is chapter 9, verse 1, where we'll get to in a couple weeks. God actually promises his Old Testament remnant people a triumphant brightness like they've never seen before. And that's where we'll pick up in a couple of weeks. Next um, Wednesday, I think Pastor Garrett is going to bring a, there'll be an hour-long Thanksgiving message in here. Um, And then the following week, we'll pick back up in Isaiah chapter 9. So let's pray together. Well, Father, we are grateful uh, for your word, thankful for um, Isaiah, this, this, uh, well, this scripture, these words, these prophecies written 2,800 years ago that uh, continue to speak truth even today, Lord. Um, And I ask, Father, that that as we consider... uh, the crossroad of trust that we might be at with you, Lord, that that um, trusting you would be foremost in our thoughts, in our hearts, in our minds, that you would give us that ability, Lord, help, um, well, help us in our unbelief, Lord, help us in the places that each one of us struggles, um, whatever distractions those might be, Lord, whatever sin matrix that might be in each one of our individual lives, Lord, help, help us through that and to come uh, out the other side trusting you in a deeper way, Lord. Help us to exercise our faith um, in little things when things are good so that when hard things come, uh, we have the, the, the faith and the strength of trusting you to endure. Uh, Father, thank you that you carry us, that you sustain us, that you provide these things for us. And I pray for your blessing upon each of my brothers and sisters here as we depart, Lord. Um, Please bless each and every one of them. And once again, just want to lift uh, Larry and Landon and and Barbara to you, Lord, and the rest of uh, the extended family um, and the staff here, Father, as as we miss our dear sister. And uh, just commend her into your arms, Lord, and and so thankful that you've got her. Uh, We love you, Lord, and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.